people it's your boy ice cold and welcome back to another episode of the ice cold show this is episode 11 man let's jump right into it we got a got a lot to cover for y'all today start off with our quote we got two quotes today there's a reason we got two quotes let's get into them they by the same person first quote everyone's always telling you to be humble when was the last time somebody told you to be great? Next quote. Don't be afraid to be wrong because you can't learn anything from a compliment. Those are both by Kanye West. Happy birthday, Kanye West, man. Just want to get that. We ain't going to get into none of the, the hoopla, but happy birthday, Kanye West. Those are two wonderful quotes that I love from Kanye West. I mean, you could just apply them in any way. Everyone's always telling you what can go wrong, but sometimes, you know, you don't hear enough of what can go right. And that's the one thing I wanted to put in the atmosphere is, man, y'all can be great. We all listen to this. We can all be great. We can all do great. Of course, we know everything that can happen if we fail, but we also know what can happen if we're successful. And then the second one, you know, don't be afraid to be wrong, bro. Like, it's okay. We don't have this all figured out. Everybody don't got all the answers. It's okay to be wrong because you learn more from your mistakes than in success every single time. I've I've played sports. I learned way more in games I lost than games I won. It's just how it goes. Um, that being said, let's jump into basketball. We had two games last night. First off, we had the Nets versus the Bucks. The Nets win 125 to the Bucks 86, and they take a 2-0 commanding lead over this series as the, se- the series shifts to Milwaukee Game 3. I expected the Bucks to come out with fire and intensity after the Game 1 loss, and they absolutely did not. <laughs> Brooklyn came out in the first, put up 36 points in the first quarter, holding the Bucks to only 19 and sprinting to a victory in which they led wire to wire and didn't even lose one quarter of this game. Not only was it a wire to wire win, meaning they they from 0-0 to the final score, the Bucks never had the lead not once and I believe that was the first time all season they've lost wire to wire. Number 2, which is which is hard to lose with wire to wire. I mean, like you didn't even go up two zero or four zero or four two or like nothing. Um, them not losing a quarter to me was special because that means even though it was a blowout and it was a lot of garbage time. I mean, after the first, it was already what a seventeen point lead, and y'all still kept the same intensity to the to the capacity of never even losing a quarter. It's special. Um, the Bucks were down 24 points at the half in this game, and the worst part about it all is what they were being dominated and overwhelmed offensively by a group of players that was just relying on KD early on. Like, KD was the only net in double figures in the first half with 21 points in the first half. The Bucks had two people in double figures, but they both only had 10. So it's like, not only are you down 24, you're down 24 to a team that's not getting double-digit performances from anybody except um, 
Kevin Durant, they're missing James Harden, they're missing Jeff Green, and you're still down by 24, the aesthetics of that, it just doesn't look good moving forward. Um, the second half went just a little bit better for the Bucks offensively. They shot the ball marginally better from the field, but they dropped in three-point percentage, and they dropped in three-point percentage in a in a way where they didn't have room to really drop, and they still dropped. Um, another game where the Bucks three-point shooting was, was just completely forgettable. They shot eight for 27 for 29% from three. And maybe this is just what they're going to do in the playoffs. I'm starting to accept it. We've seen six games from the Bucks in these playoffs, and they've shot like under 30% in every single game, uh, 29% for this game. And it's just at this point, you know, you are who you, who we who we see. Like, they are who we think they are, man. They, they're not going to be able to shoot the ball from the field efficiently is what it looks like in these playoffs. They, they keep relying on the three, keep relying on the three, and it's just not there for them, especially in this series against the Nets. Um and they need it. They need it bad. They need the points bad. Um, compare that to the Nets, three-point percentage who decided to build on what they were already shooting the game. They already had a nice shooting night in game one. And then game two, they came and had a superb shooting night. The, I mean, the Nets were 52% from the field and an even more amazing 50% from three. That means every time they shot at three, it was pretty much you make one this time, you miss one the next possession. Make one this possession, miss one the next possession. I'm sure there's a – I bet the Bucks would kill for that percentage right now. So it's just amazing the what, what – how many weapons Brooklyn really has and the ability for them to hit threes with Mike James, Blake Griffin shooting a three, KD, Kyrie, um, when Harden's healthy, when Jeff Green's healthy. It's just so many different people they can get the three ball from. Joe Harris, one of the best three-point shooters in the whole NBA. So it's just a team that, I mean, it's ridiculous. They led by 49 points in this game. And in the third quarter, I believe, but they led by 49 points. That's almost 50 points in a playoff game. It's not that it's a first round 1-8 series. This is a playoff series in the second round between the two and the three seed, and it was a 49-point difference. It is one game. I don't want to get too ahead of myself because it really doesn't matter if you win by one or if you win by 49. At the end of the day, the Nets win up another game on this series. They up two games. It doesn't make them go up three games or four games or ends the series all the way. So with games like this, you could just throw it away. Like, hey, we lost this game. Let's go out next game and play better. It doesn't matter anymore. It's already over. But I think it goes to say, like, just something's not right with the Bucks because it's not like the Nets are are just – Head and shoulders better. They're not even at full strength. And it's just they're dominating out there. KD, he was the man in the arena, uh, the man in the room this game. 32 points, 6 assists, 4 rebounds. Kyrie had 22 points, 6 assists, and 5 rebounds. A nice solid game from Kyrie as well. Um, Blake Griffin, 7 points and 8 rebounds. So nothing spectacular, nothing to, to put him on the stat sheet. But... He's playing fantastic defense on Giannis, and he's doing a great job protecting the paint. Um, I saw him do it. He's been, like, number one in the league this year in taking charges, and there was a play I remember where Giannis and I had his back to him, and it looked like Blake was going to take the charge, and as he fell back, he swiped at the ball, was able to stay on his feet, led to a fast-break opportunity for the Nets. It's been underrated what he's been able to bring to this team since he's came to this team. And I, I had to, you know, stop and just give him credit for him flying around the floor. The putback dunk he had was amazing. He turned it back to – I mean, he's like he left – when he left Detroit, he had to fly to 
L.A. and stop at the Clippers locker room and get his knees. You know, he left his knees out there in, in L.A. And now he's got his knees back and he's flying all over the place. So, yeah, shout out to the Nets, man. They look really good. On the other hand, Giannis had 18 points, 11 rebounds. Yeah, you know, it's an eh performance from Giannis. 17 points from Chris Middleton, but five turnovers, which is ridiculous. We're going to touch on why he had five turnovers, in my opinion. And he was abysmal, seven for 20 from the field. My best explanation from what I see from the Bucks is just piss poor coaching and piss poor game management from Coach Budenholzer and his staff. I'm not absolving the players at all, but let's break down the eye test. Not only are the the Bucks not making their shots they did in the regular season, they're not even getting the same shots that they got in the regular season, and it's just purely the gameplay. The games in the regular season that the Bucks won over the Nets, they had ball movement and they posted up Giannis at the elbow, our free throw line extended around the heart of the defense, around the paint area, not really on the block, but in that mid, you know, between the block and the three-point line area. And he was very successful. They were able to throw the ball into, into him there. He was able to triple threat. He could see the double teams where they're coming. He's already deep enough in the paint. And he can kick it out to the shooters as they send help. It was a perfect plan to, to go against the Brooklyn Nets. And they worked it to perfection. I'm not seeing that going forward in this series. And it's really hurting the Milwaukee Bucks. They can't catch a win because they aren't playing the same way. They stopped doing what was successful. And it's like sometimes you can overthink yourself. Uh, Matt Barnes always says it. If you ever listen to Matt Barnes do any interviews or listen to his podcast, All the Smoke, um, he talked about it when he was on the J.J. Reddick podcast. When they were teammates in Orlando, they both said they had the Series 1. They were on their way, I believe, to play the Lakers again in the finals, and they lost to Boston. And the reason they lost to Boston, he said, is Stan Van Gundy, who, boy, oh, boy, terrible coach out there in in, uh, New Orleans Pelicans this year, he, what he was doing was change the whole game plan. He got nervous. He kind of overthought it and what had been working and what was successful for them. He stopped it in that series, and they end up catching the L. I'm kind of seeing that with Coach Bud. Maybe he's just choking up, and he's overthinking it, and he's out coaching himself. Man, just stick to what works. Stick to what you were good at. Because in the playoffs now, what I'm seeing is Jan is bringing up the ball a lot, which is not such a bad thing, but he's initiating the offense which isn't, like I said, it's not the bad idea for him to bring up the ball and initiate the offense, but it's just how he's doing it. He's not driving to the rim and doing what makes Giannis the unstoppable, the Greek freak that he is. When he's going at the rim, he from half court can make two steps and be at the front of the rim off of one dribble, and it's unstoppable. You're either going to foul him or he's going to score. It just who it is who he is. I'm not seeing that same aggressiveness and intensity. You saw it a little bit in, in game one, not so much in this game. It's like Brooklyn's kind of building that wall situation again, and it's just kind of confusing him. And instead of him attacking the wall like he used to, he's trying to pull it out at the three-point line, but he's not a threat at the three-point line. So you have Giannis standing at the top of the key. Every Everyone else is standing out on the wing in the corners, and they're looking at him. They're running like a five situation like I said him not being the great shooter you got Blake Griffin guarding them or whoever's guarding them they're sagging off into the paint they're at the free throw line so they're able to clog the paint clog the passing lane and that way Giannis can't drive because he's already deep in the paint to stop him before he's able to get his momentum he's not in a great position to shoot because he's not a good shooter and as far as the cuts and screens and kicking it out on the wings they got that guarded up because they just have that wall in front of Giannis 
it's a great defensive scheme, and I don't understand why Coach Bud is having a hard time breaking it down when you've beat it all year. It's it's just it's confusing. Um, and it's not just Giannis. It's the same thing from Middleton. I'm seeing Middleton play out of his position. The Bucks are using him as a primary ball handler as well as he's running the wing iso, and that's just not his game. He's on the wing with four other guys staring at the ball watching him, which leads to him having five turnovers. He's not being put in a situation where he can be successful. He's not playing Chris Middleton ball. Chris Middleton is one of the most efficient shooters in the game. He can get a dribble pull-up. You swing it to him, and he can catch the defense off guard on the swing, and, and he can make plays. But when he's bringing up the ball with no momentum, catching at the top of the, the key, and you're running all this action with him just basically standing there, it's not good offense, and it hasn't been working. Um, as good as I think Middleton is as a player, as the all-star and stuff, it's just crippling his game and it's crippling the rest of the offense. Ball needs to be in Drew Ho Drew Holiday's hands. He needs to be setting off. Ball needs to be in Drew Holiday's hands. Off off the ball screens need to be set for Middleton. He needs to be running across the baseline and on the opposite wing is getting screened. Right. You got the pick and roll with Giannis and Drew Holiday, which I think is a great. And I think it'll be unstoppable. I think you can even, you might be able to run that pick and roll reverse where you have Giannis with the ball and Drew Holiday running the screen because he's a tough guy and he's a good screen shutter as a, as a point guard. But Drew Holiday needs to have the ball in his hand and needs to be making the plays. Not Giannis, not Middleton. The Bucks have to be the have to put their players in position where they can be successful. They have to play in favor of their personnel. Secondly, the blame is on the coaching staff and the players for the lack of energy that the Bucks are playing with. When they play Miami, it seems like the players were internally motivated because of what happened last year in the playoffs and them losing and being upset. I don't see the same hunger out of and intensity out of them in this series in both of these games in Brooklyn. That I just it's like they're not aggressive. They're not attacking it. There's no chip on their shoulder. Everything that we like from them all year, we're not getting that in this round in the playoffs. And I don't know why in the second round they're just immediately stopping. And it's just it's just strange, man. Players aren't showing up to play. They're not playing with a team like a team that has title aspirations. They're not playing like a team that was the only team to pull off a sweep in the first round. They're not playing like that team. And now they're about to they're they're on their way to getting swept. If you ask me, if they continue this way. There's no they have no answers for the for the the Nets, and the Nets ain't gonna do nothing but get better. Um, I don't like the word coach. And this is why I don't like the word coach for the NBA because I think it kind of discredits what you really want them to do. And baseball and soccer, what do they call the head coaches of their teams? They call them managers. And I think it's key they call them managers because I think it's Coach Bud's job. It's everybody's job. Steve Kerr's doing a, I mean, not Steve Kerr, but um, Steve Nash doing a good job of doing it. Your job is to manage your team as a coach, to be so in tune with your team that you can diagnose what's going on and you can fix it because you know exactly what your team needs because that's how in tune you are. They always talk about coaches watch the most film. The coach's job is harder than the players. The coaches spend more time in the gym and in the facilities and watching film than anybody else. Well, man, Coach Bud, you need to act like it, bro, because you can't be watching what I'm watching and then you keep coming out there with the same lackluster results half after half at least every half we could we could be able to see you know something drastically different in your game plan and I'm just not seeing that urgency from the players I'm not seeing it from the coaches and now the Bucks are on their heels and they need these games at home instead of being able to steal a game in Brooklyn 
You absolutely need these games for survival now at home. And and you got to win game three, period. You have to win game three. For the mental aspect of it, you have to win game three. Everybody knows no team has ever came back from an 0-3 lead. And trust me, from what I'm seeing right now, the Bucks don't look like the team to do it. And it don't look like Brooklyn's going to just give up four straight. So you need to steal one now. Hello? Wake up, Milwaukee. You're going home. The Pfizer form. You're going to have the fans in the arena. It's going to be loud. It's going to be rockets. Come out to play. Have some energy. The one thing that pisses me off about basketball is I love the game so much. I hate when there's a lack of effort. Like, I hate it. It's the regular season. Okay, whatever. This is the playoffs, man. This is what people want to see. It's kind of like when you... You're having a showcase and you want to put your best foot forward and you want to perform the best and the, the lights are the brightest because you're trying to get that fan who doesn't like the NBA. The fans like me, man, we're going to watch regardless of whatever trash and filth you put out there. My my team ain't in it no more. I'm not going to miss a game. But there's fans out there that only watching the playoffs and they want to see intensity, not 49-point blowouts, and it shouldn't happen. There's nothing the league should have to step in to do to stop stuff from like from that happening, have some pride, have some self-respect for yourself, for your organization, for the name on the front of your jersey and the name on the back, and play better, Milwaukee. I'm challenging you to play better. I expect better for you from you guys. I really do. Um, let's talk about you know the Nets because as much as the the Bucks aren't playing to their level and this and this that and the third, let's not get it twisted. The Brooklyn Nets is going out there and kicking their ass like from jump throughout the game, they bringing it to their front door, the patio, the back window, the porch, the driver's side window. I mean, they they at their necks at every chance they get. I mean, KD is the difference right now in the series. He's the best player in these playoffs. I thought Giannis was the best player in this series coming forward. KD is the best player in the, in the playoffs left. That man is special, bro. And he's just playing like he's the best player, too. It's the confidence. It's the swag. It's the aura of KD as he plays. We know that KD has turned into this villain over since he went to Golden State. He became the villain. And I can't lie. I didn't like him at first. But it's awesome. Like, KD as the villain, interacting with the fans, talking smack to everybody, kind of with the nonchalant, like, the disrespectful undertones. Every time he speaks, it's like he's upset or disrespected, no matter if you complimented him or not. And I like the edge, bro. It's going to make it so much better if somebody actually beats him. It's also going to make the victory sweeter if he wins because he did it his way, kind of like giving the FU to the world, like when he was with Golden State. So I, I definitely like what I'm seeing from KD. The crossover on Giannis that everybody is talking about, with the at the M1 jumper and the snarl and the words for the crowd after ETC. Mm, I love it. To the post-game interview where he when he's asked the ignorant question of if he thought he would come back and be able to play at this level, which of course he smugly smiles and like, are you serious? Of course. I'm I'm KD. And like I just think like that right there is what I want to see from everybody else in these playoffs. That I, I am who I am. I see it from Trey Young. I see it from him. I see it from Kawhi Leonard in the last couple games against Dallas, for sure. I'm seeing it from Devin Booker, for sure. Like, I want to see that from Giannis Antetokounmpo in this series because KD's got it. He's got the swag down pack, man. I, I, I love stuff like that. I'm sorry, man. The way he was into this game and the way he's into this series, it's 
it's so beautiful. And it's like you ask a guy like KD, who was the best in the world, like at that level of the, arguably the best in the world, probably the best scorer we've ever seen hands down. You ask him if you think he's going to be to another, that same level. First off, you don't get to the level you are that KD is in the NBA without having immense self-confidence due to the fact that you know the work you put in to be great. So asking him if he thought he was going to be on this level is kind of ignorant. But the way he handled it was the beautiful part of it. Not to harp on that, I want to touch on something I saw on ESPN, and I think it's one of the most interesting stories surrounding this series, the uh, interesting background noise uh, for people who like narratives and things like that. Um, Jay Williams told a story on ESPN how he was at a party, and KD approached him about some comments he had made about if uh, KD and AD made a baby or something, it would be Giannis, some, something along those lines. He had said that on ESPN. Uh, weeks or days before, he's at some party, he sees KD. KD approaches him and says, you know, the comments you made about Giannis, whatever, don't compare me to Giannis. Don't ever compare me to Giannis. Jay Williams is taking it like, oh man, don't, you know, think it's a misunderstanding or whatever. Nah, bro, I was trying to say, and KD stops and says, uh-uh, don't you ever compare me to Giannis. And for a little bit of background story, KD obviously faced some injury. Giannis won back-to-back -back MVPs. A lot of people didn't like or respect KD after joining the Warriors and felt like no matter what his production was on the floor, it was going to be skewed in some way because obviously he had some of the best teammates in the world. And at this time, a lot of people were saying Giannis was better, and I think KD took that personal then. According to Jay Williams, he obviously took a personal then. And the way he's playing, like I said, that snarl, all that stuff he, you know, the stuff he did with Giannis with the crossover and the look and his, the intensity in his eyes, the way the Nets are coming out and fighting and playing, I believe it. Like, I believe it happened and I believe it happened that way. Who knows if the story is true or not? But like I said, all the evidence pointed to that and I like it. I like it. And if KD feels that way and is taking it personal, even if he had to make up something like we are Shaq with the David Robinson, if you got to convince yourself and make up something in your head to get you going, I like that kind of crazy. I like that you want to win so bad, you got to like make some stuff up in your head to make you play. But whatever it takes to get you to the promised land, let's get there. Like I said, the Bucks are in big trouble and the Nets are who we thought they were going into game three. Let's jump into the, the second game we had of the day. It was Denver and Phoenix. Whew, what a game, man. The first game of this series was just completely awesome. Phoenix was able to come back and take a 122 to 105 win against Denver, take a one-point lead, I mean a one-game lead in the series. Uh, on their home floor, they showed out. Side note, Devin Booker has been showing up to these games in some old-school car heat. If you haven't seen it, man, please go check it out. That man car collection got to be crazy. Um, but anyway, back to basketball. The game started with both teams matching point totals in the first quarter and more of the same in the second quarter. Denver ended the, uh, the first half with a one-point lead over the Suns, 58-57. Early on, the Nuggets got the lift they needed from Nikolai Jokic, obviously the perennial MVP uh, candidate. Everyone's got him winning. Uh, my concern going into these playoffs was Jokic's condi conditioning and fatigue. Is he going to be able to continually carry this team and put them on his back like he did in the regular season and he did in the first round with, with 
if he's going to get the help, it obviously it's better. But can he do it with or without the help and putting in these big 30-point triple-double performances consistently because that's what they're going to need if, if they're going to have any chance of beating Phoenix. Um, in the first half, I mean, he kind of shut me up with that. He didn't look fatigued. He looked... He looked like Jokic. He came ready to play. He played 18 minutes out of the 24. He put up 15 points, six rebounds, had two blocks, and he shot seven for 11 from the field, which was great. Michael Porter Jr. was a solid sidekick early on. He had 12 points and four rebounds for Denver. And uh, a flash in the pan, somebody I didn't see coming out and, and scoring a lot of points in this series or in this game was Campazzo. Um, Nobody really focused on him and what his impact would be on this series because he's going against Chris Paul. Um, I figure if Chris Paul isn't healthy, maybe he does some dirty little sneaky stuff to kind of hurt him or pull on his arm or whatever. But instead, Campazzo came out there and scored the basketball. He had 11 points and four rebounds at half. The Suns, on the other hand, were led early on by their best player, D-Book. He had 11 points, 5 assists. DeAndre Ayton, who's been stellar all playoffs, added 11 points and 8 rebounds, matching the production just about from Jokic, which is key if the Suns want to win this series. Jokic, Jokic has to be counteracted by the player DeAndre Ayton if Phoenix wants to win. Vice versa, Devin Booker's output and performance has to be matched by Michael Porter Jr. if the Nuggets want to win. That's the key. You're going to have to make it a wash between one of your best players on this team. And if you can make it a wash, then you can depend on the other guys to step up and pick up the slack. And in this game and early on in this half, it was pretty much a wash from those from the two stars on each team. Miles, um, sorry, not Miles, Mikael Bridges and Torrey Craig both hit two big threes apiece in the first half for the Suns, which was key. They were able to keep those, get those big threes and those timely threes from each of them, and it was able to keep the game close or keep them afloat or keep them in it, and it kept the Nuggets from being able to pull away. And vice versa, Composo was able to keep the game close for the Nuggets and keep the Suns from being able to gather a lead and pull away. The second half, everyone who was able to watch the second half of this game experienced what what a home playoff crowd means and to, to basketball. Like the energy that they provided in Phoenix, the way the crowd got jumping in that half, like that to me is what turned the tide of the game. You're down big and you, you're starting to slip away, but every time you score, the crowd is raucous. That's all you need sometimes to motivate you and push you. Um, Mikael Bridges, we're going to get into it, but he was perfect from the field in this half. I mean, in this quarter. Five for five from, th- from the field, hitting two more threes. And like I said, he was the guy who got the crowd, the energy in it. When it, when it seemed like it was going to go down, Mikael Bridges always did something. Get a big stop. Make a good defensive play. Make a good contest. Get a rebound. Hit a three. Hit a two so on and so forth. The energy in that building was so crazy, I could literally feel it in my living room watching the TV. Like, I had goosebumps. It's something about thousands of people yelling and cheering after opponents hit a three that's deflating as hell for the away team. Like, for Denver to watch them hit a three and then the crowd erupt like that and you got to call a timeout because you can't hear yourself think and you look at the score and you're still up seven, but it feels like you're down 15 the way the crowd is screaming. The the momentum shifted in this series, and in the, well, the momentum shifted in this game. I won't say in this series yet. It shifted in this game in the third quarter, and once it shifted and the arena got behind Phoenix, it was cookies. Like, it was curtains. It was over from there. Like, they had the energy. They had the momentum, and the Denver Nuggets could never keep up. Suns never let the game come within 10 points after the third quarter and took home a great win. 
A sudden starter carried this game. Mikael lead all led all the scores with 23 points, five assists, five rebounds. He was eight for 12 from the field, four for eight from three. That's 50 percent. Devin Booker was 21 points, eight assists, four rebounds. He had five turnovers in the first half and none in the second half. So he had a glaring weakness in the first half. He turned the ball over five times, which you could say potentially helped keep the Nuggets in the game and helped them keep the lead they had because there wasn't a lot of turnovers being committed by the Suns. I think Devin Booker had five out of their six or seven, and he able to clean that up, and it, it did wonders for them in the third quarter. And he was eight for 12 from the field. Jay Crowder had 14 points and hit three threes, so he did his job, and he's able to uh, stretch the floor, split the floor out for um, Phoenix like he was able to do late in the series against the uh, Lakers. For the Phoenix Suns, CP3 was the man in the room for me tonight. After hurting his shoulder in round one, not looking healthy at all in round one, coupled with a mediocre half from Chris Paul in this game, only having five points and three assists, he erupted in the second half, scoring 14 points in the fourth quarter alone. Ended the game with 21 points, 11 assists, six rebounds, and only one turnover. Even more reassuring for the Suns, he was 57% from the field and hit two for three from three. Have a night, Chris Paul. He's a guy that we were leaving open as far as we, I'm talking about the Lakers, were leaving open in that series because they knew with his shoulder being injured, he wasn't really able to shoot the ball from deep like he liked to. He was still able to get to the rim, penetrate, I mean, not get to the rim, get to his spots in the mid-range and penetrate and hit his jumpers. But this series, man, Chris Paul looks healthy, okay? He looks healthy right now, and the Suns look scary when he's healthy. For the Nuggets, Joker finished the night with 22 points, 9 rebounds, 3 assists, and 2 steals. Unfortunately, um, like I said, the energy was sucked out the building, and you could see it kind of get sucked out of the uh, the Joker late. He didn't even score in the fourth quarter. Eric Gordon had 18 points. Uh, Aaron Gordon for the Never Nuggets. And Michael Porter Jr. finished with 15 points and 7 rebounds. But if you remember, he had 12 points in the first half. So he only had 3 points total in the second half. And that was the same with Combazo. He had 11 points in the first in the first half. Only 14 points in the second. I mean, 14 points total. So only 3 points in the second half. 6 assists, 4 rebounds, and 2 steals to add to with Compazzo. I liked what I saw from him. He was an irritant on the floor. He got on people's nerves. He had some a big steal, like when he dug, dug down in the post and picked up a steal. I liked what I saw from him and his effort. Uh, the difference in this game was obviously the third quarter, but the big difference to me was Phoenix able to get to the line 20 times and hit 17 of 20 from the line, when in contrast, the Nuggets only got to the line six times, but they made five. So maybe if the Nuggets are able to get to the line, stop them runs, quiet the crowd, they'll be better off going into the next game of this series. I expect better from the Suns going forward. And I expect even better from the Nuggets going forward. But I don't think the Nuggets, the way the crowd was last night and the way that they were able to feed off that energy as far as Phoenix was able to feed off the home crowd, I don't know if Denver can win a game. I know they can win a game. I don't know if Denver will win a game in Phoenix. And, you know, what you call it? Uh, Phoenix has home court. So if... If they all win all the home games on their court, that means it goes game seven and Phoenix wins in seven. So I don't know, man. I really hope Denver makes this a series. I hope we don't see no more blowout series. My team ain't in it. I want every series to go seven. So I can't wait to see what we're going to see out of this game next game. I think Phoenix going to pull out another victory um, in game two, but I'm, I can't wait to watch it. I tell you that much. 
And so that's it for the two games. We got two games tonight. Um, we got the Philly game and the 76, uh, the Philly 76ers and the Atlanta Hawks. I'm going to go with Philadelphia is going to make up for their game they lost. They're going to play good defense. They're going to play the defense and the intensity that they had late in that game. I think they come out with that intensity, and I think they pull out a victory. Trey Young is continually to play like this. It's, this is going to be trouble because Philly can't guard them. If Trey Young's able to do that, the only way Philly can guard them is if Ben Simmons or Danny Green can stop Trey Young. If they can't, it, it's matchup nightmares all over the perimeter. There's a lot of talent in Atlanta, bro. People don't talk about it. It's a lot of talent on that roster, and they're a dangerous team if you don't take them serious. Um, to get back to a segment that I'm sure y'all now know and love, this is part three of the most overpaid part of our, yeah, I'm hating series. So first thing first, we got Detroit Pistons, and for them, we got Blake Griffin. Blake Griffin was paid $32 million this year before his buyout. I'm sure the number isn't there, but as far as if you go on the salary cap and look in the books online or whatever, $32 million was his salary for this year. While he was in Detroit, he averaged 12 points, 5 rebounds, 3 assists. He shot 36% from the field, which is horrendous, 31% from 3. And I went with Blake, and I know the Pistons fans got to be feeling cheated right now because he played 20 games for them this year, 31 minutes a game, shot 36 from the field. But now with the Nets, he's shooting 50% from the field, 38% from 3. Just a whole different player. Obviously, Blake didn't want to be in Detroit. Detroit didn't have a chance to probably make the playoffs or win games. I can't blame him for that. But when a team's paying you $32 million a year, I mean, you can fake like you want to be there at least a little bit. Like, you can pretend that you're playing hard something. Uh, Blake is in the top 20 most paid currently right now in the NBA, falling at 18 on the list. He makes more money than Anthony Davis. Let that sink in. Finals MVP, Anthony Davis. He makes more money than him. For half the money Blake Griffin is making, half, you get Clint Capella, who's averaging 15 points, 14 rebounds on 59% shooting from the field, and he's giving you two blocks a game, and he's changing everything defensively in the paint, and he's five years younger than Blake at $16 million a year. Like, it's just such a waste of money. I'm so sorry, Pistons fans. Like, it's ridiculous. Blake also makes more money than Nikolai, Nikola, Vucevic, sorry with the European names, y'all, I'm trying. Nikola Vucevic, he plays for the Bulls, formerly for the Orlando Magic. Pascal Siakam, Miles Turner, Nikola Jokic, Carl Anthony Towns, and more than Embiid for the next two years. That means when Embiid extensions kick, extension kicks in, he would have still been making more than the salary of $32 million that Blake Griffin Blake Griffin would have been making more than him still. It's just ridiculous, man. So that's what I had. For the Detroit Pistons. Uh, coming next, we have Charlotte. Cody Zeller was the guy I came up with for the Charlotte Hornets. He makes $15 million a year. 9.6 rebounds, 1 assist. He's 55% from the field. It was tough. I don't dislike him. A lot, some of these players I don't really dislike or whatever. It's just how the, it's how the money breaks down and who else is getting paid at your position and so on and so forth. Because this one was tough. The Hornets aren't paying guys a lot of money. Gordon Hayward is their highest paid player, and I think the money matches the production. He's like 19 points a game, close to 20. And when he was playing, they were a playoff team for sure, and they were definitely a better team. Um, everyone else who I don't like on this team are like I 
not as far as don't like, but I think don't deserve the minutes or the money. They're not getting paid that much anyway. Um, Cody is a solid player who gives solid production, one of the hardworking bigs in this league. But for that amount of money, I just feel like there's so much more better value. There's so much better value you can get, especially for a team that was so close to making the playoffs this year. Getting adequate value for that money would have been perfect for them. For example, imagine switching out Cody Zeller with Jonas Valanciunas out of Memphis, who we who I like a lot on this show. Clint Capella, who we already talked about, averaging 14 and 15. Um, who make the same amount of money as Zeller, and Yusuf Nurkic from Portland, Montrez Harrell, Serge Ibaka, Thomas Bryant make significantly less money than Zeller with significantly better production. So, you know, just find better ways to spend your money. These teams will sign guys off of one good year and a flash of in a pan, and then it doesn't, it doesn't show out. And just Zeller's one of those guys who was able to sign this contract when money was really good, and now, in hindsight, don't look like a smart deal. There's, trust me, there's going to be more of that when we get down the list. Next, we got Sacramento. Buddy Hill, $24 million, 16 points, 4 rebounds, 3 assists. He's shooting 40% from the field and 39% from 3, which is good from 3. Um, people wondering why I have Buddy Hill. Let's, let's break it down. Buddy Hill just wrapped up his fourth season in the NBA, only four. In the NBA, he's already 28 years old. He came. He was a four-year player at Oklahoma, so he came in the league at 24. So he's already 28. Fun fact: He's only one year younger than Harrison Barnes. So Harrison Barnes, when he was on the Warrior team that won the first title and so on and so forth, the 73 and 9 team, all that stuff that happened, and it seems like Harrison Barnes is 100 years old and he's played forever. He's 29, but he healed his 28. They're on the same team. They make the same amount of money. Kind of crazy. No wonder the Kings suck. Um, I mean, you got two players on your team making thirty-two million dollars. You're not a playoff team, and they're both averaging sixteen points. Like they're both averaging like the same amount of rebounds. It's just stupid. Um, it's the first year that his big extension kicked in, as far as Buddy Hield, and this is another reason why he's on my list. Adversely, this is the second year his point per games dropped. This year, it dropped three points. He was averaging 19 last year, and he was at, he's averaging 16 this year. It's just like, come on, bro. You're, 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 you're trending downward, but your money's trending up. It doesn't make sense. Like I said, the Kings find a way to pay the wrong guy at the wrong time all the time. Um, shooting percentage dropped. Not too much, but they did drop. The good thing is the highest paid player on your team is playing all but one game in a season, 71 out of the 72. The bad thing is you're still one of the worst franchises in the league. Marcus Morris is averaging about the same amount as money or the same amount as Buddy, but he's scoring the ball better, shooting the ball more efficiently. Now, actually, they're scoring the same. He's shooting the ball more efficiently for sure from the field and from the three, and he makes $10 million less than Buddy. So for $10 million less, you're getting the same point production, you're getting it on better efficiency, and you're getting a way better defender than Buddy Hill. Kelly Oubre, Joe Harris, Karis LeVert, who's averaging like 20, Eric Gordon, and both of the Bogdanoviches, no relation, Bojan and Bogdan, are also making less money than Buddy Hill and like significantly less money. And they're getting this, they're about the same age and they're getting better production. The Kings got to be smarter with how they spend their money with $48 million locked into Barnes and Buddy Hill for the future. Yuck. 
Um, next, we got OKC. This is the last non-playoff team on our list. So after we do OKC, the rest of the teams will be in the playoffs, and we'll try to work it down and do teams by when they've got eliminated, or we'll do the eliminated teams first by how much they spend in payroll. So next, we got OKC. The last non-playoff team, we got Al Horford. Al Horford made $27 million this year. He averaged 14 points, 6 rebounds, 3 assists, 45% from the field, 36% from 3. While when I was looking this up, the 36% from 3 kind of surprised me. That's pretty good for Al Horford to be shooting from 3. It's close to 40%. Um, a key thing for me was he only played 28 games. Uh, the Thunder situation is unique. They weren't really playing to win. They're kind of like rebuilding. They took Horford as like they were they I think Philly was it yeah Philly was able to dump his salary on them and they were able to absorb it because they had all the cap space like I said they weren't planning to win they got a lot of picks they're building for the future so Horford was shut down early on in this season um and he looked good he looked good this year that being said like I said I think he could still be a big help to a lot of teams especially a lot of playoff teams I think my Lakers could have used them especially with that 36 percent from three um but at his price point, it's unrealistic. Nobody's going to take him. He's going to have to get bought out. I don't think nobody makes a move for a Horford's $27 million because he's going to keep making more money. Like, it's going to go up. His contract, I believe, is for the next two years. Um, he's making more money than the defensive player of the year, Rudy Gobert, just to name one person. And I don't think his production will be anything like it was in the past moving forward. And I think his best days are behind him, yet he still owed $51 million over two years. So obviously the Thunder are going to have to buy him out. He's not going to sit there and not play a whole nother year and waste his career. Um, he's also not going to turn down a lot of money. So it's a very weird situation for Al Horford to be in. Do you just sit back and collect your full amount of pay? Do you force a buyout and take significantly less money because you love the game? you're later in your career and you just want to play and see how it goes out it's interesting to see what happens but 51 million over the next two years for Al Horford is just unreasonable if you ask me I I, I, I can't pay him I don't care how close you are to winning I don't think he should like teams like Boston who could use him the Lakers we can't afford him so yeah Al Horford man you overpaid bro grossly overpaid and last for today, we got the best team, my favorite team, the greatest franchise of all time, the Los Angeles Lakers. This one, it's a special shout out to go with this one. Just so y'all know, no, it's not Kyle Kuzma. No, it's not KCP. No, it's not Montrez Harrell. This one goes out to Mitch Kupchak. Thank you for screwing us, not in just the summer of 2016, but you're screwing us till, still to this day, Mitch Kupchak. Luau Deng is the most overpaid player for the Los Angeles Lakers. Yes, we are still paying Luau Deng. Luau Deng has been getting paid for the Lakers since 2017 and is due to make another $5 million next year. He made $5 million this year and he's going to make another $5 next year off of us. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. I almost forgot to name his averages. I don't even think I did research on his averages. Let me come up with them off the top of my head. Let me think. Hmm. He averaged zero points, zero assists, zero rebounds, zero steals, zero field goal percentage, zero points this year because he didn't play. Um, this hurts because a team like the Lakers with championship aspirations just got eliminated in the first round. And you know what we could have used? That $5 million to help improve our roster. 
a lot of the different moves we wanted to make to improve our season, we couldn't make because simply we weren't financially able. We were financially handicapped. And it's hard not to point to the guy making $5 million who hasn't played in an NBA game since the 2018-2019 season. And what makes that even worse is he was playing for the Wolves. He wasn't even playing for the Lakers. He got another contract in between. For all the money Dane costed us now and then, He's only ever played in 57 games as a Laker. Total, the total, uh, his point per game is 4.5 points per game. He averaged two rebounds over those 57 games. And if you break down the money, he was paid $1,140,350.88 a game while he was with the Lakers. Signed a four-year, $75 or $72 million deal. He was able to give $7 million back, which helped us make the deal to bring LeBron, which I thank you for. But God, it's ridiculous. Some of the moves we make and some of the players we put on our roster, we wouldn't have to if we had the extra $5 million to spread around and use at our discretion. And it really hurt us and it really bit us in the behind this year in the playoffs because we didn't have enough shooting, we didn't have enough depth, and we faced a lot of energy injury this year and it would have been nice to not waste money on a player like I said who hasn't played in like three to four years <sighs> let's wrap up the show I know it was a depressing way to wrap up the show to my Laker fans but it is what it is uh, let's jump into our quotes from our man Kanye West once again happy birthday Kanye West everyone's always telling you to be humble when was the last time someone told you to be great secondly don't be afraid to be wrong because you can't learn anything from a compliment I just want to say thank y'all to all the support. I looked at some of the numbers today. We we put out our first 10 episodes. This is episode 11. We've done it all within three weeks. Our podcast has touched, well, my podcast. I'm doing this all by myself. Father of two. I work full time and I'm able to come give you these episodes and I'm able to reach three different countries, 14 different cities six different states and I couldn't do it without all the love and support. Thank y'all for listening. Thank y'all for tuning in. Couldn't do it without you. It's been your boy, Ice Cold. This is the Ice Cold Show. And say it with me, everybody. Like always, it's been a finish. And you ain't never hit the trap like this. So stop front, nigga. I stayed down for the come up. A nigga grinding to the sun up. I'm trying to stack these funds up. Make sure I raise my sons the right way. Could give a fuck about what you might say. It ain't-